take some questions? By all means. Dr. Crisp, <clears throat> as you've outlined your version of the incarnation anyway model, where through the incarnation, it is through that means that there is the interface and condescension of God and humanity. Do you see any tension between that argument as you've outlined it and Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1 that says that humanity only may have fruition of God if he condescends to us, and that is through covenant? Possibly. <laughs> Could you elaborate some? <laughs> I mean, I'd have to go away and look at that, to be honest with you. But um, I, kind of confessional Christianity is important to me. I, d I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I hope that's clear in some of the things I've written. So it seems to me that, um, that uh, God's word is God's um, means of communication to us, divine speech acts that that um, he gives for us. Then you've got um, ecumenical councils of the church that sort of stand under that as a subordinate norm, as it were, but obviously not with the same status as scripture, which is the norming norm. And then I think of particular confessions of particular strands of the Christian tradition, like the Articles of Religion of Anglicanism, say, or the Westminster Confession, beloved of many Presbyterians, or the Belgic Confession, beloved of many Continental Reformed, or whatever it might be. Catechism of the Catholic Church, I suppose. Augsburg Confession. I think of these things as a third tier of confession, or a third tier of norm, as it were, standing under Scripture and under the Catholic creeds. And then at the bottom of the pile, I think there are the, the opinions of theologians, people like me. And theological opinions come and go. They're not quite as important, but they're a lot less important than confessions. And confessions are important as, as representations of particular streams of, Christian, of the Christian faith, uh, usually associated with particular communions, you know, like Presbyterianism or Anglicanism, whatever. But they're not as important as the great Catholic creeds, which are shared amongst all Catholic Christians of whatever tradition. But they, in turn, are not as important as Holy Writ, which is God's communication to us. So it would trouble me, of course, if what I said was inconsistent with the Westminster Confession. It wouldn't, I, you know, it wouldn't be something that I would be able to brush off easily. Um, but there may be ways in which I could get around that, uh, depending on how I worked with the, the other sorts of subordinate norms in light of scripture. So that's a rather roundabout way of answering your question. I'd have to go away and look at the particular um, article of the Westminster Confession that you're referring to. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I had a question regarding uh, church growth globally. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis this level or depth of theological inquiry, uh, as one who seeks to be a world Christian and in a school here that seeks to be very practically oriented, uh, I've always wondered about the distinction between the growth of the church in the South 
and the East, uh, which is about nine to ten times the growth of the church in the West and the North. And I wonder what thoughts you might have relative to the depth of theological inquiry or its absence uh, in those parts of the world where Christianity seems to be taking on a larger role. Crikey. Um, <laughs> I'm not really a specialist in any of these things, so anything I would say would be uh, not much different from your average pew dweller, I imagine. Um, I suppose there's a lot of talk about the kind of global shift from the northern hemisphere to the, you know, the global south and churches of the global south um, beginning to take the lead numerically and in terms of their kind of um, capacity to change the sort of agenda, theologically speaking. And it does seem to me, although it's less evident here in the United States than it is in um, the old world where I come from, that the tide is going out on Western Christianity. Um, that's, that's salutary, I think, in important ways. Nevertheless, because of the way in which the Christian faith has flourished uh, in the Western world, so-called, um, over the centuries, we do have a kind of depth of, uh, depth of field when it comes to theological reflection that, to some extent, some of the uh, churches in the South don't possess in the same way just because they might be newer churches or they're growing so quickly, all those sorts of things. So it may be that um, there, are, there are ways in which the Western church, though it's enfeebled, um, nevertheless has a kind of intellectual heritage that could be transmitted, helpfully transmitted, to churches in the South in a way that will help them in their um, attempt to contextualize the gospel in their global South context. I hope that's true. And certainly in the institution that I work at Fuller, we uh, are keenly aware of that shift. You know, we're obviously facing out on the Pacific and so on, um, and keenly aware of the significant changes that are happening in the, in the Global South and uh, attempting in various ways to provide some resources for that. I think also the community that I'm part of is, is aware of and alive to the kind of contextual differences that exist between you know so-called western theology and theology of these other contexts um so i hope that there are ways in which the sorts of things that western churches do can help churches in other parts of the world i certainly don't think that um you know the western church has a kind of monopoly intellectual monopoly on um, all the useful things that there are to say about matters theological um, but it may be that that's, that's a small contribution that we can make to the larger uh, life of the church. And who knows, maybe, maybe the way in which we transmit that uh, intellectual legacy to the, the southern churches will um, be a seed that fructifies the global church and will go on to do great things in the years to come. That would be great if that were the case. That's about all I've got to say on that, as far as Gump says. <clears throat> Dr. Crisp, uh, in the possible world that you outlined um, where created beings would be unfallen and yet Christ would become incarnate in order to unite them with God, that seems to imply that 
there will be a disunity between unfallen beings and God? And if I was wondering if you comment, if I'm correct on that, what would be the nature of that disunity if it is not sin? Okay, so do you, by disunity, do you mean uh, there would not be the sort of there would be some union lacking between the creatures and God? Is that what you're talking about? You don't mean disunity in a stronger sense, do you? Uh, they'd be annoyed with God or something like that. They'd fall in love with God. <laughs> uh, it, in some sense, that there'd be a a need for abridgment between. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God and, Good. Yeah. So yeah, that is my claim. My claim is that um, and this is this is one of the hinges on which the argument turns. My claim, <coughs> what I've come to think is that um, that even if we were in an unfallen state, we would not be in a state in which we would be fitted for participation in the divine life. That's the claim. I mean, that's one of the fundamental claims of my argument. So that we would need an incarnation or something like an incarnation, some act of condescension on the part of God that would bring about the possibility of union with God and the incarnation is the most fitting way for bringing that about. Because without the incarnation, we wouldn't have the interface between us and the divine. Dr. Chris, you, you talked about um, Scripture and the redemptive focus of Scripture and how uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that even though redemption is the end, is why Christ came, he came to redeem man. Yeah. The incarnation, you know, independent of the fall, could have, would, have, would have needed to happen anyway in this view. I guess my, my question is, if Christ did, I guess it's kind of a counter question, hmm. Would, would the fall or at least redemption not have to be the context of the incarnation? Like, what would people be doing if Christ came down, so to speak, and, and, but there was no disunity, at least in their original state, in their um, Edenic state? Um, I guess it would just, instead of being a redemptive focus of, say, Scripture or whatever, it would be more just a unionizing focus in Revelation of Scripture. I mean, this is very hypothetical, of course, but... yeah somewhat speculative, I guess. So we see scripture so much as being redemptive, but you're almost mm. showing a story beyond the story, that there's this idea that, okay, because man fell, yes, we have a redemptive focus of scripture, a redemptive revelation, and a redemptive incarnation. Mm. But if the fall had not happened, it wouldn't necessarily mean we didn't have to have an incarnation. Right. So I don't really know if that's much of a question. but Yeah, well, it gets at really what I'm thinking the end of creation is, and this is my disagreement with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, by the way, I mean, Edwards is a big influence on me. I, 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 he was someone I did my PhD dissertation on. I've written a few books on and so on. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about these things alongside Edwards and, and for many years totally f- swallowed Edwards' view about God's end in creation, you know, that God's ultimate end is his own self-glorification, but have become increasingly um, concerned about that, the instrumentalizing stuff I was talking about. Um, so if the end of God in creation is unitive in nature, like St. Thomas suggests, rather than, as, uh, as Edward says, uh, to do ultimately with his divine self-glorification, um, then my suggestion is that that end may um, mean that we ought to think about the beginning, so to speak, the protology, uh, in a different way. Here I have in mind, in the back of my mind, the, the uh, principle, what is first in intention is last in application. Okay, 
So suppose you go on a trip, you go on a road trip, and your, your goal is to go and see the Golden Gate Bridge. But on the way, you're going to go and see your friends who live in Kansas, right? Well, um, you know, your first intention is to get to the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's the last thing you do on your trip. You have various other things you do, including stopping on the way at Kansas on the way, right? But that's the ultimate end, the Golden Gate Bridge. It's the first intention that you formed. You said, I want to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. To do that, I'm going to have to have a road trip. I might as well stop up at Kansas and see my friends on the way. And, and that's how it works, right? But in that decision-making process, what's first in intention, going to the Golden Gate Bridge, is what's last in application, the last thing you do in the trip. I guess what I'm asking is, applied to God, what's first in intention that's last in application? If what's first in intention is unitive in nature, like St. Thomas is saying, then I'm saying that that may make us think differently about the nature of election and uh, the nature of the world that God creates, and it may give us reason to think that something like uh, an incarnation anyway argument is worth seriously considering. And so, that, so that's largely the, the, the benefit... <clears throat> that you see in this is trying to sort of solve almost an ethical dilemma that almost you could, you haven't said it this strongly, but almost a narcissistic yeah, self-glorification exactly. God versus a God who wants to be unionized or unified with. That's right. Yeah, it is. That's one of the big questions that's been worrying me over the last few years, how to resolve that issue. Last question. Just quick clarification. So the <laughs> hypothetical world with unfallen beings that would still need abridgment, would you see that even as a connect in our world, as Adam was created sinless, but nobody would say he was in union with God, so is it even uh, a touch point of connection between those two worlds before the fall? Yes. So had Adam remained sinless, suppose there's an Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and so on, uh, had Adam and Eve remained sinless, would they have needed an incarnation in order to be united to God? My answer is yes. That's a good note to end on. Thank you very much. Thank you.